Hello, I'm Abram Van Ingen, an English professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm Joanne Diaz, an English professor at Illinois Wesleyan University. And this is Poetry for All. This podcast is for those who already love poetry and for those who know very little about it. In this podcast, we'll read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we are really excited because Mary Jo Bang is joining us to discuss her beautiful poem, Head of a Dancer. Mary Jo Bang is the author of many poetry collections, including Elegy, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry, a translation of Dante's Inferno, and A Doll for Throwing, published by Grey Wolf Press, which includes this poem, Head of a Dancer. Welcome to the show, Mary Jo Bang. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Mary Jo, would you be willing to read this poem for us? I'd be very happy to read the poem. The Head of a Dancer. The days when you lean your head forward, then pull your head back to see the sun is only a chrysanthemum. The eye is a white lake with a black boat moored at a particle pier that says what you want back isn't coming. The white speck says there's a light source that shines day and night far from a balcony on which an audience waits to see us open our doll eyes and close them again. I keep my face facing front to see every last thing that is coming. What is coming is this, a hat to be worn when taking a train, a compact in a pocket, a letter in a pocket, two hands, a waterfall pouring its contents into a well-worn shuddering mind. I'm as devoted to knowing as the dim fish swimming in an ever-widening circle. Today outraced the latest hour of midnight. My hat tells you that, that and that I strangely resemble you. Eyes, nose, lips that refuse to open, knowing the face is glass and that glass can make or break you. The dog in the street pauses just as a car comes. Where does it stop? And now this, someone says. The precise line draws the bone that holds the cheek in place. The cheek waits to be kissed by air, as it was once kissed by the dark-haired boy in the boathouse, whose late-night lesson was that the distance between what had been described and what was now happening was immeasurable. The morning after, the black shoes on the shelf were married to a new, all-encompassing idea. The dress is no longer the thing the future is founded on. You put it on, you take it off. Oh, I love this poem so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. One of the things I love so much about the poem, and it's true of all the poems in your collection, A Doll for Throwing, is that they point to so many things at the same time. I'm interested in the relationship between the words and the image that inspired you. Write a photograph by Lotta Jacobi of a dancer. I'm interested in the shape of the poem itself. I'm interested in the voice in the poem, the perspective. And so maybe we could just try to take that bit by bit. And, you know, when I talk about 
this poem and its relationship to this photograph, just for people who might be listening but may not have the poem right in front of them, this is an ekphrastic poem. Ekphrasis is really um, just a fancy word for what is a pretty straightforward idea, but something that's actually quite difficult to execute, right? So simply put, ekphrasis is any poem that derives some kind of inspiration from an art object, whether it's a photograph, a painting, a sculpture. But the nature of that relationship between word and image is what's so complex. So sometimes ekphrasis can be argumentative. Sometimes it can be performative or descriptive or meditative. And so I guess for me, when I read this poem, I wonder what for you is your relationship to this photograph and and how are you how are you thinking about it in the poem i think that the photograph captured me because it's a very striking photograph and i was looking at photographs taken by women who were associated with the, the bauhaus school school of design and i was finding photographs that would somehow speak to me as we say and this one certainly did it's a woman's face and her face is very small and she has on a very wide brim black hat so that the contrast between that huge black hat that almost fills the space and that small face did certain things for me one is it's the drama of it is very clear, but there was also about femininity. The woman has, uh, in that period way, shaved her eyebrows, and so she just has these little arched eyebrows over her um, oval eyes, and then this very small little mouth. And there's something very diminutive about her, but at the same time, because she is looking directly at you, there's also a kind of strength. And I had been documenting or I'd been researching another woman photographer, Lucha Maholi, and I came across this photograph and in a way used this photograph to conflate thoughts and biography that belong to Lucha Maholi with this, this figure in the photograph. And and can you say a bit more about who Lucha Maholi was and what drew you to her her sort of life story and how you weave that into this poem? Well, Lucha Maholi was the first wife of Laszlo Maholi Naj, and when he went to the Bauhaus to be one of the master uh, teachers, she went with him, and she knew darkroom photography and had used darkroom photography, and he didn't. And so she uh, apprenticed herself to the workshop there in photography, but they began making photograms together. And she did all of the, um, the actual work and all of the developing, all the darkroom work. But hmm. those, um, those images are all um, ascribed to him without her name being anywhere on them. Actually, all of our knowledge of the, the Bauhaus and, and of those places and those products are because of her photographs. There are very few photographs that aren't by her. Mm. And she had a very particular perspective uh, when mm. she would take those photographs. And so they're very recognizable. It's not just what's being photographed, it's how she positioned herself to mm -hmm. be the object. Yeah. Can we talk about the form of this poem? And the poems throughout the book are prose poems. 
Uh, and I'm and I'm wondering how that relates to the project of the book. So you've said in other contexts that you see yourself as creating a rhetorical surface on the page when you create a poem. And of course, that form always relates to content. So I'm curious if you could talk uh, a little bit more about why you chose the form of, a, of prose poetry for this book and what it achieves here that perhaps line breaks could not achieve or how you use it, uh, how you see the rhythm and the sentence length and the sounds throughout this poem. It was actually a very interesting experience for me because I chose that form because of the Bauhaus, because all of those mm. objects are very linear and very compact and mm. free of ornamentation. And so mm -hmm. I thought well, that would be perfect. These Bauhaus poems will have their little Bauhaus you know, um, house to yeah. live yeah. in. <laughs> and so for each one of them, that was it was decided in advance. And they're justified blocks. So it's not just a prose poem with a ragged right edge, but mm. it's little blocks, just like those buildings are. Mm. But what I realized later, and only later, was I was writing differently than I would if I were lineating them, and then mm. concentrating on where the line should break. And mm. it was interesting because when I finished the book and I started writing again, I started writing in prose blocks, but I wanted to continue to mine somehow this new way of thinking about what I was going to say. But mm. after a while, I got tired of it because I love line breaks. I love that <laughs> moment when you kind of hold back a little surprise or hold yeah. back what's going to happen next because always in a poem, just like in prose, the poet wants to create a state of mind in the reader where they're thinking without even knowing they're thinking, and then what happens, and then what, and then what. And so that line break plays with that expectation and that desire to know, and then what happens. Yeah, and I love this idea that you're talking about, that even the process of thinking about what you're writing as you're writing is so impacted by the form that you've chosen to write in. When you're, when you're lineating, when you're looking for the line break and thinking very carefully about where it ought to come, it produces a kind of thought process about poetry itself. Uh, whereas here, the thinking is differently. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could say just a bit more about what, what you felt in your sort of thought process when you didn't have the line breaks to be looking for and thinking about uh, what sort of other kinds of things were you then looking for and thinking about in this kind of, of poetry? Well, I think telling a story, perhaps, and that's what the prose poem is good for. When there are narrative elements, um, the prose poem suggests this is like prose, this is like a story, this has a narrative arc. And so I think that each of these, in the back of my mind, I was telling a story for someone or about someone, and I was mixing in my own stories at the same time because I'm, mm. never, I'm never not in the poem, but I'm also not myself in the poem. I'm many people. I'm an actress. And so I have scripts. And some of that script has to do with my own biographical particulars. But some of the script I'll borrow from someone else. Whoa, that was amazing. Okay, that because <laughs> I'm serious. That that is one of my biggest questions for this poem is you know, who is the speaker? And so I, I'm not asking that because I want to find out 
autobiographical information about the writer. That's not what I mean. Many of the poems in this collection, they do feel like dramatic monologues. Yes, they give us a sense of a kind of interiority and a psychological and intellectual exploration. But um, the, the title of your book is A Doll for Throwing, so that can refer to these sort of flexible rag dolls that were made by a Bauhaus artist, but they could also refer to the throwing of the voice that a ventriloquist does through a puppet. And so I wanted to ask you about ventriloquism in this poem, perhaps others in the book, and ask you, what are you ventriloquizing in the world of this poem? I think that the speaker is a marriage of Lucha Maholi and Mary Jo Bang. Hmm. One of the dramatic uh, moments in Lucha's life was when she was in 1933, she and Laszlo Maholi had split up and she was involved with a member of the Communist Party and he was arrested in her apartment and she had to flee. Her background was Jewish. And so she had to leave, and she had to leave all of her glass negatives behind. She left them in the care of Laszlo Maholi Naj uh, because they were still good friends, and she still was doing his darkroom work for him. So she had to flee that very same day with only what she could carry with her. And I knew, I, I was in Berlin at the time, so I knew what train she was getting on. I had this sense of that need to escape and I thought in that day and age, you would think that perhaps a woman would wear a hat if she were leaving mm. and also to disguise herself somewhat. So mm. that idea of the hat became something that someone's wearing as they're going on a train. And then other disasters came into my mind. That dog in the poem who runs out in front of a car actually happened to me many, many years ago. And that came to my mind as um, a small disaster and that moment when you can't stop something from happening. Mm. And so all of these thoughts just intersect in the mind and I'm tracking them. And in tracking them, I'm writing them down. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And it, what it brings to mind for me is, so each of these particulars is particular. I mean, so you talk about there was an incident with a dog that you remember, but but it's also pointing to this broader theme that any of us can attach to. What? How do we not stop a disaster that we see is coming, or or a disaster is coming? We could see it coming, but it's too late to stop. And so there's this these thematic elements tied to these really beautiful particulars throughout the poem that I think makes it both a blend of your voices and also a thing that can speak to anyone who who enters this poem. I wonder if part of that effect, Abram, is in part because I'm roped into the poem as a reader. So from the very opening sentence, the days when you lean your head forward, then pull your head back to see the sun is only a chrysanthemum. The eye is a white lake with a black boat moored at a particle pier that says what you want back isn't coming. The you is an address in part to the speaker's interior self, but it also makes me think about um, my own memories, the my own small disasters, my own things I can't get back. And it's, it's a poem that announces its losses in a very profound way right away. And I love that about it. 
the other thing I love about this poem that I see happening in it is this is is the way in which certain repeated words bring us back to these general themes. So, for example, what you want back isn't coming, and then a couple lines down, face facing front to see every last thing that is coming, and what is coming is this, and then the dog in the street pauses just as a car comes. And so you get these repeated words that draw us again and again into this momentum of the poem, this idea of an emergency and also of a sense of the impending, uh, of the thing that is coming and facing it frontward. Mm. Mm -hmm. And also, I love when you create, as Abram is saying, these standalone phrases or sentences that are just so memorable. So I'm thinking of the face is glass. And that glass can make or break you. Also, the distance between what had been described and what was now happening was immeasurable. Or the dress is no longer the thing the future is founded on. You know, as I, as I look at this poem too, I, I also just, what I love about what you've created here is, is again, the kind of movements that go on and the repetitions that go on, but also the movement back and forth between what you've written here and the image itself. So we'll we'll put a link on the uh, show notes for this episode so that people can go and see the image that this poem goes with. But when you read that line, knowing the face is glass and that glass mm -hmm. can make or break you, and then look at the image, it's, it's, it's an incredible description of this image because she is staring at you with exactly as you described before, a kind of inner strength. And at the same time, it looks incredibly brittle and fragile. This whole idea of ekphrastic art is so fascinating because, again, one trains oneself to look, whether it's just to look in appreciation mm. at photographs or art or installations, sculptures, and to, to allow those images to work on you is to spend enough time so that you lose yourself in mm. the image. And you go past that initial just looking and just appreciating. You know, Roland Barthes in Camera Lucida talks about two experiences of looking at photographs. One he describes with the Latin word studium, mm. which is a kind of intellectual interest. The other one is punctum, um, to mm. pierce. And um, I think that some photographs do, and that's his argument, that some photographs pierce us. There's almost a physical reaction looking at them. And so I think that part of what one does with ekphrastic poems is to find those very images that are piercing to, to us, and that will vary with, from person to person. So this was one of those that pierced me. I think a lot of it has to do with the femininity of this image mm. as well, and that whole idea of what it yeah. is to be a woman. You know, I, I think that's lovely. And one of the ways I see getting lost in the, in the image here and that movement in the poem itself, in the beginning, we have a black boat on a, on a white lake which is really her eyes. You're, you're, the eye is a white lake with a black boat moored at a particle pier. Uh, and you can almost see a kind of moving through the eyes of this image in, and then getting lost in all yeah. of these thoughts that follow. Uh, and to the point where at the end of the poem, we're back at a boathouse. The cheek waits to be kissed by air as it was once kissed by the dark-haired boy in the boathouse whose late night lesson. And the lesson there, again, is one of distance, 
and closeness, the distance, the difference between mm-hmm. description and experience, the distance between what had been described and what was now happening mm-hmm. was immeasurable. And I feel like that line, it's, I just love that line because first of all, I think that's just so true of so many things, but also that it kind of summarizes where we've gone in this poem. Thank you. With all of that said, Mary Jo, would you be willing to read this poem for us again? I would. The head of a dancer. The days when you lean your head forward, then pull your head back to see the sun is only a chrysanthemum. The eyes a white lake with a black boat moored at a particle pier that says, what you want back isn't coming. The white speck says, There's a light source that shines day and night, far from a balcony on which an audience waits to see us open our doll eyes and close them again. I keep my face facing front to see every last thing that is coming. What is coming is this, a hat to be worn when taking a train, a compact in a pocket, a letter in a pocket, two hands, a waterfall pouring its contents, into a well-worn, shuddering mind. I'm as devoted to knowing as the dim fish swimming in an ever-widening circle. Today, outrace the latest hour of midnight, my hat tells you that, that and that I strangely resemble you, eyes, nose, lips that refuse to open, knowing the face is glass and that glass can make or break you. The dog in the street pauses Just as a car comes, where does it stop? And now this, someone says. The precise line draws the bone that holds the cheek in place. The cheek waits to be kissed by air, as it was once kissed by the dark-haired boy in the boathouse, whose late-night lesson was that the distance between what had been described and what was now happening was immeasurable. The morning after, The black shoes on the shelf were married to a new, all-encompassing idea. The dress is no longer the thing the future is founded on. You put it on. You take it off. It's wonderful. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Jo. Thank you, Abram. Thank you, Joanne. And thanks to Grey Wolf Press for granting us permission to read this poem, which appears in A Doll for Throwing. You can learn more about Mary Jo Bang and her poetry and more about Lucia Maholi on the Poetry for All website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Mary Jo, for joining us. 